Dear ones, I'd like to greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Very, very good. Do me a favor. We have around 200 guests that are with us today. Will you show them a wonderful, warm welcome, please? The Bible tells us, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Then it comes along and states that we are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, But you shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and onto the uttermost parts of the world. Well, love revolution. For the eight years that I've served as dean of the chapel, IWU has designated a week which is focused on the theme, Love Revolution. And so to launch Love Rev Week 2015, I want to talk about the elements of a revolution and then connect what I share with the theme of love. And then I want you to know that at the end of my message, I am going to be giving an invitation, an invitation for you to respond to the movement of God's Holy Spirit within your heart. As I look at revolutions, I conclude that there are at least five different elements that all revolutions have. The revolutions, they start out with a cause. The cause usually begins with a concern. The concern then leads to a conviction, and the conviction then leads to a crisis in which the individual or individuals conclude that something has to be done. There has to be a change that takes place. In fact, historians have identified major causes to revolutions that have occurred down through history, such as financial crisis having an effect on a majority of citizens over an extended period of time and with no apparent end or solution, or a sharp increase in prices that the populace can no longer bear, or the belief that there has been a misuse of power among those in roles of leadership, or the government, whether state or local, raising taxes, that they become so weighty a burden that, again, the people cannot bear it anymore. Perhaps the question that you and I need to be asking ourselves should go something like this. What causes are we focused on? Or what stirs our heart? I recognize that on this campus that there are some individuals that they are focused on the cause of eliminating human trafficking. I also recognize that some are focused on the cause of equal rights for all people. In fact, a few years ago, I kind of chuckle about this, but a few years ago, some of our students on this campus demonstrated over the price of cheese on hamburgers. When I was in high school, the cause that stirred my heart was the Vietnam War. And the cause stirred so and burned so deeply within my heart that I was willing to skip classes to march to be part of a throng of believers who came along and would come along and call for an end of a war that had taken the lives of so many individuals to include my eighth grade math teacher and junior high track coach, Mark McKee. In fact, if you look at the picture up there, can you see where I am? Put the circle up there. Wasn't I a good looking kid? Well, weeks ago, Dr. Newman, a few weeks ago, Dr. Newman asked those on a cabinet this question. What is the one thing you do that is key to what you are? In, in a way, he was really asking this question of all of us cabinet members. What is the main cause of your life? I came along and shared that I thought the cause in my life was to pray, to, uh, to get other people to be prayer warriors. But Dr. Newman was not satisfied with my answer, and he said, I want you basically stating to think deeper about the question. This is what I've come up with. 
The main cause attached to what I do here at Indiana Wesleyan University is seeking to help those in this community to walk in God's righteousness as well as to help equip them to be servants of the Almighty God. But I also want you to know, I've also decided that I have a secondary cause that I'm going to be focusing on. And the secondary cause is this. I'm going to try to help this community to be a friendly community. A community whereby when I'm walking down the student center, I'm going to say hi to you whether you want me to say hi or not. I'm going to come along and say hi to you whether you lift up your head and smile at me or you put your head down like this. In fact, dear ones, if you come along, you're going to sometimes see me coming and shaking hands with you. In fact, do me a favor. Stand up for a second. I'm going to have you do something hokey. It's interesting to me that inside the Word of God that you come along and you see that when Christians gather together that they're supposed to give each other a holy kiss. Not a kiss. A holy kiss. Now listen, I'm not going to ask you to do that. But will you do me a favor? Will you give the person next to you a big hug and just say, I love you? Okay, dear ones, can I please have order back? You may be seated. I want you to know, some of you are a bunch of hams. I saw one of you come along and give a person a hug and then stick out your tongue at the person. <laughs> but you need to understand that a cause may then lead to a commitment. And I want you to notice that I stated that it may lead to a commitment. You see, many causes do not get to the commitment level for the following reasons. For some, it may be due to apathy or just indifference. For others, it could be because they don't see the issue as being important enough to put much energy into. Others hesitate to commit due to insecurities of fear, wondering what the repercussions may be if one does get involved with a certain cause. Or some may not seek to get involved due to feeling insignificant, not feeling as if they're good enough or talented enough to do anything to cause change to the situation. And so their thinking goes something like this, why even try? But those who do make a commitment they do so based upon two understandings. That first of all, they understand that there is a cost to committing. Of the 56 men who signed a declaration of independence, some paid high emotional and monetary prices in a revolution that followed. That in the eight years of war that took place, that stretched across so many eastern states, many could not escape the direct effect of their defiance. Four were captured and imprisoned. One's wife was taken prisoner. Sons were killed. Others were taken as prisoners. Many had their homes, their farms, their land holdings pillaged and looted and destroyed. But these men knew what they were getting into. Because when they signed the document of the Declaration of Independence are the following closing words that we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. In fact, dear ones, Jesus Christ spoke about commitment costing a person his or her personal will, his or her personal wishes, his or her personal wants, and even his or her person wealth. 
or in other words, the committed cost of the giving up of everything. In Luke chapter 5, it records Jesus Christ calling his first disciples, that in the calling of Simon Peter, in the calling of Levi, the tax collector, Luke notes that they left everything to follow him. This commitment of total surrender jumped off the pages of the Bible the first time I read it as a brand new Christian. Jesus Christ extended to these men the invitation to follow him. And the Bible tells me that they dropped everything and they followed. Once again, hear the word, they dropped everything. You see, it's recorded in another place in Luke's gospel that others wanted to take care of their affairs before they followed Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ basically came and told them and said, yes, that they could take care of those things or they could choose to follow him. But hear what the point, but they could not do both. And the things that they wanted to take care of weren't insignificant things. It wasn't like they wanted to go check Facebook one last time. One person wanted to go and bury his father and the other person wanted to say goodbye to his family. Simon, Peter, and Levi, they dropped everything, everything. I picture the early followers of Jesus Christ leaving their boats, their nets, their tax collector booth, their other possessions, their families, their houses, their careers. Now you need to understand is that it doesn't mean that they never saw their families again. For we know that according to the Bible that some of the disciples stayed in the home of Simon Peter as Jesus Christ healed his mother-in-law. But you have to understand their attitude, that they were willing to, willing to give up all to follow Jesus Christ. You see, individuals making a commitment understand that there will be a cost. But dear ones, they also understand that it will also require courage. Courage is a powerful affection. It brings together a wide range of other affections, love, devotion, and can I share, even anger at times, into a single motivating power within a person. Courage can lead us to say and do things that we might never have dared to think possible. But courage in and of itself is not necessarily a good thing. You see, lots of people over the years have shown great courage for unjust causes and improper ends. Mere courage, a power that works within us to enable us to overcome fears and surmount challenges is not what the Christian should be seeking after. But instead, the Christian wants the treasury of his heart to be filled distinctly with Christian courage. The ability to overcome fears and surmount challenges in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for the sake of his kingdom. Christian courage is the work of the Spirit of God. You see, there's a saying that I resonate with. No one ever made a difference in this world without stepping foot outside their comfort zone first. So a cause which leads to a commitment can then lead to change being made. The word revolution means to have a turnaround. It is to do things that causes change to take place. Jesus Christ, as we all should recognize, when he came, he brought change. His ideas stirred men and women to follow him and caused others to hate him. But either way, Jesus Christ, he shook the culture of his day. And dear ones, hear what I'm saying. I believe that you are a generation and we live in a generation that we can shake this world for Jesus Christ. His teachings 
They were not based upon the philosophy of men or of war, but upon the truth of the holy and righteous God. He did not call men to pick up arms and guns and to shoot their enemies, but to love one's enemies and to do good to them that were full of hate towards them. He taught his followers to pray for those who persecuted them. When men's, man's natural reaction is to strike out in anger and even kill their enemies. See, I was thinking, how do I react when I'm opposed? How do I react when individuals criticize me? How do I react when someone comes along and yells out to me, hey, you scumbag? I never knew what a scumbag was. But the teachings of Jesus Christ, you need to understand, they're radical, they're revolutionary, they cause change, and they are in sharp contrast with that of man's natural inclinations and attitudes. You see, Jesus Christ never called men to engage in ethnic cleansing. He never called men to go forth cutting off the heads of those that disagreed with him or mass murder in order to gain political control or any other kind of control that some earthly revolutions have used. He never led an army of men with machine guns through the jungle to hunt down and kill the opposition. But rather, Jesus Christ, he led 12 disciples back and forth across Judea, teaching them to minister to the masses of people and empowering them to do so. And the weapon that he gave them, it was the weapon of the Holy Spirit that filled them with a divine love. You see, Jesus Christ called his followers to be holy as God is holy, to walk in the righteousness of God, to be filled with the Spirit of God. He started a worldwide revolution that cost him his life because what he taught challenged the authority, the authority of the religious leaders of that day. He called his followers to be servants and not to be seekers of power in order to lord it over other people. He told his people to take care of the widows and the orphans, to meet each other's needs and care for the sick and the dying. He admonished his followers to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to bind up the wounded. Jesus Christ, he taught plain, profound, and practical truths. Not complex religious laws that nobody could follow at all. He told his people to love one another. And so what is the heart of Love Revolution 2015? Well, Carolina, in a way, has already introduced to us what that theme is. Can I share? It is a revolution of holy love that comes because we are filled with the Spirit of God. For our community to be moved from self-focused love to selfless, saintly, Savior-generated love. And in order for this revelation of holy love to occur, we must be willing to move from being just close to Jesus Christ to being Christ-centered. With palpable passion and intensity, Bill Hybels, sharing at a leadership conference, he stated that by far the greatest, toughest chasm in the church are those who are close to Jesus Christ and those who are Christ-centered. He then proceeded to explain what he meant by the two different phrases. He informed those in attendance at that great conference that there are those people who are exploring, who are growing, who are very close to Jesus Christ. 
And at first it sounds as if this is a wonderful trait for these individuals to have until we realize, as Heibel stated, that these are still fundamentally self-centered, believing that God is for me and my plans and my agenda in this world. Hybels comes along and identifies these individuals as being self-focused believers who believe that the world revolves around them. Hybels then boldly stated, we need believers who move from just being close to Jesus Christ to being truly Christ-centered, being fully surrendered to Him. Believers who have given up their own dreams, have given up their own desires, have given up their own agendas, exchanging them for what Jesus Christ wants from them. In fact, William Barclay contends that when one becomes a believer and one becomes filled with the Spirit, that there will be a change in understanding about the circles of love. You see, so often a tendency for us is this. We want love to be showered upon me, family, other Christians, neighbors, Christ. They're all there to love me, to cater to me, to build me up to encourage me, to lift me up. Or in other words, according to Barclay, the arrow of love is pointed inwards, always pointed towards the me. But the way of the Christ-centered believer is this, that the love we have that originates from God, it will always be pointed outwards, going outwards so that it will touch one's family, touch one's friends, other Christians, our neighbors, and even towards those who do not get along with us, and even those that we claim are enemies to us. You see, Jesus Christ, he centered, Christ-centered Christians, they realize that divine love is not just a heartfelt emotion. In fact, Barclay wrote these words, the love of God that we have, that we are to have, is not simply an emotion which arises unbidden in our hearts, but it is a principle by which we deliberately live. It supremely has to do with the will. It is a deliberate conquest, an achievement of the will. It is, in fact, the power to love the unlovable, to love people whom we would not like naturally, to love those who, for whatever reason, have labeled themselves to be our enemies. In fact, I love this thought that someone gave. The Christian's only method of destroying his enemies is to love them into being his friends being filled with holy love. You see, dear ones, God's love, which we can possess, it is sincere, in that it has no ulterior motives. Will you, will you do me a favor? I think I have time to do this. I see this happening many times among those who are chorale members. So I'm going to ask you to do it. Will you all stand up again? I'm going to ask that you all face this way, that way. And will you do me a favor? Will you scratch the person's back that's, um, that's in front of you? Yeah, wow. Okay, look at me for a second. Let's stop there. How many of you did not have your back scratched? How many of you that did not have your back scratched feel kind of irked about it? Yeah. Okay, have a seat. Let me try to... Oh, no, do me a favor. Scratch the person. <laughs> All right. Now, let me explain what I'm trying to get across. When I was a little kid growing up, we didn't have a lot of money. The way that we entertained ourselves, my brother and I, is that we would scratch each other's back. 
But if it became something like this, I would scratch Billy's back because I wanted him to scratch my back. And any time, because Billy was bigger, he was the older brother, I would scratch his back for like around 30 minutes. I would want him to scratch my back, and he would come along and put up his fist and say, I'm not going to scratch your back for any length of time. Can I share? Yeah, that's right. Oh. <laughs> but I think sometimes we do that inside the church of Jesus Christ. I'm going to scratch your back because I expect you to scratch my back. Can I share? When we're talking about divine love, it says, I'm willing to scratch your back even if you don't scratch my back. It is not superficial, surface pleasantness which cloaks inner bitterness, but instead God's love is always generous. It's always giving. In fact, just Jake Thurston on his Facebook posting this morning had these words. The greatest disservice we can do to Jesus Christ is to bear his name but not show his love. <laughs> <laughs> Can I share? I like it better when you don't say anything. So <laughs> But you need to understand something, dear ones, is that when we talk about God's love, Christian love is always a giving love. It's a forgiving love. It's a restoring love in that it is a love that enables the wrongdoer the means of returning to the right path. God's love seeks to serve. It issues in actions. Christ-centered Christians are also individuals who understand the following, that God's love cannot be humanly generated. Therefore, they seek out the Word of God to discover what course of action they must take to be able to be filled with God's love. Or can I put it this way? This really is the question for this week. How can we have a spiritual love revolution? The answer, you know it already. It is approaching God for His gift of infilling. Many years ago, my life was changed by a small tract by Bill Bright, the former president of Campus Crusade. It spoke about being spirit-filled Christians, which allows the revolution of love and holiness to occur. Bill Bright wrote, We are filled with the Holy Spirit by faith. Everything you receive from God from the moment of your spiritual birth until you die, it is by faith. But the questions that you and I need to ask, questions that we need to affirm before we are filled with the Spirit, goes something like this. Do you really want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Do you really want to be controlled by God? Do you really want to be cleansed by His Spirit? Do you really want to be empowered by Him to serve Him with all that you have? Do you really want to be filled with divine love? Do you really want to be blessed by Him? Do you really want to make an impact for the kingdom of God in this world? And dear ones, if you answer in the affirmative, then the answer really is found in the person of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to beg God. You don't have to coerce Him to fill you with His Holy Spirit. For a long time, I fasted and I cried out to God for His fullness. And then one day I discovered from the Scriptures that the just, they live by faith. You see, dear ones, you do not need to earn the fullness of God, but you receive it by faith. 
You see, millions of Christians are begging God, as I once did, for something that is readily available, just waiting to be appropriated by faith. But before we enter into the time of invitation, and we are going to enter into that in a few moments, it's important to recognize that several factors contribute to preparing one's heart for the infilling that can take place. That first of all, you must desire to live a life that will please the Lord. You have the promise of the Savior. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Second, you must be willing to surrender your life totally and irrevocably to our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul admonishes us in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What is love revolution about? I believe that it's not just a bunch of activities, but it really is to be transformed by the Spirit of God. And thirdly, confess every known sin which the Holy Spirit calls to your remembrance and experience the cleansing and forgiveness that 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 talks about, that if we confess our sins, that God, He is faithful and just, and He will forgive. See, there are two words that you need to understand that are key words as we enter into this time of invitation. The first word is command. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, God commands us to be filled. Do not be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. The other word is promise. A promise that makes the command possible. This is the assurance we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. It is God's will for you to be filled. It is his command for you to be filled. And today, I want you to know that during this chapel service, you can ask God to come and fill you. Not because you deserve to be filled, but on the basis of his promise. I want you to know that when the infilling takes place, which opens the way for a revolution of holy love to take place, celebration occurs. I've asked the worship team to come on out. I've asked different individuals from our community if they would line up the altar, the platform up here. And so will you do that? Come on, just keep, keep moving. This is what I'm asking you to do. I'm going to ask that you, as a congregation, if you wouldn't mind standing up, and as we enter into praising the Lord, I believe that there are some of you inside this room that the Spirit is speaking to your hearts. And you know, yes, I have been saved, and I know that I am going to go to heaven, but I need to go at one step further. I need to be filled with the Spirit of God that allows me then to be filled with a holy love, a supernatural love that the world cannot understand. But once they see it demonstrated in our lives, they begin asking the question, what makes you so different? And it becomes a wonderful witness then that we serve a risen Christ who fills us up with his love so that we can love a hurting world. And so what I'm asking you to do is that as we're singing, if you would like to be filled, I believe in the symbolism of oil. Oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit of God. 
And if you would like for one of these individuals to anoint you with oil and for them to say a prayer over you that you truly will understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God, will you do me a favor? Will you slip out from right where you are? Come to these individuals to be anointed, to come to obey the command and to believe in the promise that we can be filled. Let's worship the Lord. Will you respond? to the nudging of the Holy Spirit.